0: Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. Good morning and welcome. Good to be together, as it always is. And this morning, we're finishing the series today um, with Jesus' seventh letter recorded in the book of Revelation And the letter is addressed to the church at Laodicea And uh, you can see where we've come from So just out at Patmos there Is where John was when Jesus dictated seven letters to him Those letters came in to Ephesus And then the postal postal run began From Ephesus to Smyrna To Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, And now Laodicea And and back to Ephesus Now in Laodicea Jesus was not held In his rightful place The people Were in this horrible state Of self-sufficiency Believing that they could work life out Both in the church And in their daily lives Without Jesus And so he was left on the outside of the church and on the outside of their lives, knocking on the door. He was excluded. He was not needed. And this can so easily happen when in our heads we acknowledge Jesus' lordship. But the reality in our hearts can be different. And in every aspect of our lives, him being in our hearts and Lord of all in our hearts, when that doesn't happen, and it happens so frequently for all of us, in fact, we lack this kind of wholeheartedness, which leads to compromise. And we begin to compromise in our lives. And what we call kind of half-heartedness or double-mindedness, which invariably leads to this inconsistency between... Our private life, so our life in the church, say, or our life in our families, and our life in the marketplace, or our life uh, in the workplace, or in the community. This inconsistency in our lives, which the Laodiceans knew only too well. And so let's read the letter. Let's hear the letter. These are Jesus' very words to the church there in Laodicea. And Jeff uh, is going to read for us. Thanks, Jeff.
1: Revelation three fourteen to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say... I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches.
0: Thanks, Jeff. This is probably the strongest and the most hard hitting of the seven letters. Yet, at the same time, it's probably the most inviting. So, the strongest and hard hitting I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That's strong. And yet, at the same time, the most inviting Eat with me and sit on my throne. What an incredible contrast! Whatever condition we find ourselves in today There's hope There's hope of change There's hope of transformation Wherever we might be The grace of God is at work The love of God is at work To bring us from a condition That might not be favourable To one that is life-giving And so Laodicea is the only church actually of the seven To receive no positive comments from the Lord of glory, not one. You see, the church had allowed themselves to be shaped more by the culture of the city than by Christ. See, they would assimilated, they had kind of blended in. They weren't distinctive in the city. And so they just blended into the life of the city and they let the culture and the mindset of the city into the church And so were formed more by the city than they were by Christ. And so if you want to know something about the church in Laodicea, we need to know a little something about the city in Laodicea. And see, Laodicea was a well-known city. It was well-known for its prosperity. It was well-off. It was beautifully situated in the fertile Lycus Valley and Sue and I visited Laodicea about five or six years ago. A couple of photos that I took on that visit, um, the top left there, that's um, from Laodicea looking out over the valley. It's a beautiful, fertile valley. It was just near the amphitheater where the amphitheater was. It's a beautiful spot, and you can see the roads there, some of the roads in the city, which show us that a lot of archaeological work's still being done in Laodicea, but it shows us that this was a prosperous city. This was a well-off city. It's one of the temples that you can see uh, there. But this city was also beautifully positioned on, in, on several, actually, important trade routes. And so it had a lot going for it at Laodicea. They'd amassed considerable wealth as a people. So well-off was the city that when it was destroyed by an earthquake in AD 60, um. What was normal in those days is for there to be a subsidy from the Roman Senate that was sent to the cities to rebuild. The Laodiceans refused any help from anyone, including Rome, and they went about and promptly rebuilt that city out of their own resources. They said, we don't need any help. Thank you very much. But see, the city was known for three main things. Now these three main things are important for us to see because Jesus refers to them and the letter is actually written around these three main things. The first one is their wealth. They were incredibly wealthy. They were a financial and kind of banking centre for that whole region of Phrygia where they were located. Um, and in fact, when there was a call for help for the poor in Jerusalem, which there was, and we read about that even in the scriptures, but there was a call to help the poor in Jerusalem. Well, the Laodiceans, the church there, they sent over 10 kilograms of gold to Jerusalem to help the poor. They were wealthy people, they were generous people, and they gave. And uh, we know that that money, that gold came out of the vaults of the banks there in Laodicea. So they're known for their wealth. Secondly, they're uh, for their clothing industry They had a famous clothing industry in Laodicea And that came from the quality of the wool That was uh, bred uh, on the sheep there in Laodicea In that fertile valley And so they had this; they manufactured fine clothing And they exported this fine clothing In fact all over the known world in those days They were well known for it In fact they were the best dressed people apparently in Asia Minor and they placed a lot of emphasis on how well they looked, their dress, their external appearances. They're also known for their famous medical school uh, in Laodicea, especially for the eye self. This is an eye powder that they actually developed that, um, that healed inflamed eyes. It was applied to weak and failing eyes. They had apparently amazing results, so they were known For their I self. But see, Jesus knew them. He knew these things, but he knew far more. He knew everything about them. And so, like all of these letters, when Jesus begins, he addresses himself to the church in a very pertinent way, a way that reveals who they are, the church, where the church is. And in this letter, we read that Jesus begins his letter by giving a very clear statement of who he is that is who they have excluded so he makes it clear who they have excluded Jesus says he is the Amen the faithful and true witness the the ruler of God's creation so what does the Amen mean well today it probably doesn't mean much more than a full stop at the end of a prayer but the Hebrew word acknowledges something significant It acknowledges something that you can build your life on. And so Jesus says, I am the, amen, the definite article. I am the one, the one and only that you can build your life on. The utterly trustworthy foundation of life. And I have been excluded. I've been excluded. You've excluded me. He says he's the faithful and true witness What Jesus is saying there, he is the utterly faithful witness of God. He is the true revelation of God the Father. Amazing. There's two Greek words in the New Testament that are translated true. One is true-false. The other one is genuine counterfeit versus counterfeit. So you've got true-false, genuine counterfeit. Now, it's the second one that Jesus uses here. So Jesus is saying that he is the real and genuine article. What he says is true because he is the truth. Do you see that? He's saying, I am the truth. And everything I speak is true. He is the exact representation of God. The genuine human person. God become human. And Laodiceans, you have excluded me. Then he says, the true ruler of God's, sorry, the ruler of God's creation. The actual word there is ark of God's creation, which does mean ruler, but it means more than that in a way. It's the beginning, but it's not just the first in a sequence, but it's the source of the whole sequence, over the whole thing. Over the whole of creation Meaning he's beginning and the end The first and the last The last, the alpha and the omega So Jesus is saying That all of God's creation Has its origin and purpose in him He is the source But he's not only the source He's the moving cause of life He's the moving cause of the entire creation Everything will be summed up in me is what Jesus is saying It's all mine It's all being created for me By me and for me Every tongue will confess my lordship In other words Jesus is saying Everything in the universe has his stamp on it It bears the imprint and fingerprint of Jesus the ark This is why the New Testament Says that we are predestined To be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ Why? Because he's the ark and we are the ark type He created us, we didn't create ourselves He's the one that has created us We are the ark type So our destiny is written into every cell of our lives Every part of our lives works best When they operate in harmony With our ark, Jesus See all things are intrinsically made To work in Christ's way This is what he's trying to say In him we live and we move and we have our being Sort of idea that Jesus is saying here So if we're created by Christ, for Christ Then in the end he is inescapable We can't escape him Nothing can, no one will escape him We may rebel, we may run away But in the end we cannot deny reality He is who he is And we can't escape Jesus Christ. And so he's saying to the Laodiceans, this is who I am. This is the one that you have excluded. Now, they would have heard that too, because they knew all about themselves. Then Jesus goes on to say, I know your deeds. And he says that in each letter, I know your deeds. In other words, I know everything about you. Not only what you're doing, but how you're thinking. I know your hearts. I know everything about you. And so in verse... 15 and 16 there I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot I wish, you either, I wish you were either one or the other so because you are lukewarm neither hot nor cold I'm about to spit you out of my mouth see the church was giving the foundation and the source of life just mild approval not really needed mild approval The Laodiceans' doctrinal ideas in their heads might have been, you know, pretty good. But there was a terrible complacency born out of their wealth. They weren't passionate about Jesus. They were kind of self-satisfied, self-sufficient. Thank you very much. I am fine by my own. Don't interfere, son of God. They were holding their beliefs kind of privately, I expect, and respectfully. They believed in him. But there wasn't the deep conviction in their hearts, that conviction that leads to wholeheartedness and that life-changing, life-transforming consequences of Jesus being alive in their lives and in their hearts. So Jesus was nauseated by their lukewarmness, neither hot nor Nor cold. And so Jesus is about to spit them out of his mouth. The Greek word is actually vomit them out of his mouth. Now their indifference made Jesus sick. It made him sick because he loved them, because he cared for them, he wanted the best for them, he was moved for them. This is where when Sue and I visited Laodicea, there's many moments there that were just so helpful to us, words that uh, Jesus' words and the images are just tied into real situations and circumstances in the lives of the people. There's books behind each word that he spoke, short letter, but you will never unpack it. See, the church in Laodicea was one of three sister churches, which we know about from the book of Colossians. There was Hierapolis, which is about five kilometres over the Lycus Valley. Sorry, there wasn't. There was. Yes, there was. Hierapolis. It's about five kilometres over the Lycus Valley. See it there on the, um, on the map. And then just upriver was Colossia. And so those churches were quite close. And when Jesus wrote, as you know, to the Colossians, he said, could you please make sure, Paul, in that letter, to read this also to the church at Laodicea? Because there's a lot in there about true riches. A lot in there It's very relevant to the state of the church There in Colossia In Laodicea See Laodicea was just opposite there Opposite the Lycus Valley It was up um, It was just opposite Hierapolis um, And I think there's a picture coming up there This is the amphitheater at, at the top left there At Hierapolis Beautiful amphitheater Looks over the valley um, Amazing really But Laodicea, sorry, Hiopolis was famous for hot springs. You know, people would go and sit and soak in this hot mineral water for healing and for health reasons. You can see Sue there standing in one of those hot springs, beautiful warm water. There's a few others there and you can see them down the side of the hill there. But the water from the hot springs It flowed and it spilt over the kind of cliff that was there. It was a broad cliff. It was probably only 100 metres high, maybe over a a kilometre wide. But this hot water flowed down over the cliff, across the Lycus Valley. Um, And you can see it's a white kind of cliff because um, because of the film of calcium carbonate that it left behind. But it was a wonderful sight from Laodicea to see Hyopolis. See Hiopolis? so that's Laodicea in the foreground, quite close to where the amphitheatre used to be, but see that white kind of hill there? That's the hot water. That's Hyopolis. Where it flows down there and into the Lycus Valley, that water. And of course as it travelled this hot mineral water across the valley, it became lukewarm, this water. And to make things worse, Laodicea didn't have any really natural kind of other Uh, Source of water So an aqueduct was used to carry the water Into the city And so by the time that water got into the city It was not only lukewarm It was stale Not only that, it was tasteless and distasteful And nauseating But when you Visitors went there in those days And we read of this They would taste this water And some of them would spit it out Others swallowed it And they vomited Because of the the water, lukewarm mineral water But just down in Colossia Just down up river There was beautiful cold springs Refreshing cold springs Beautiful water, life-giving water And as it made its way down the valley It kind of lost its refreshing characteristics As it flowed, as it mixed with the hot water So it mixed, it was compromised From the water from Hierapolis Hot or cold, both conditions Are good for particular purposes I don't think Jesus is saying one is good And one is bad But the imagery of the hot and cold I think is shaped by the geographical realities Of the area And Jesus is saying lukewarmness is nauseating It's sickening Which the water of the city actually was But he was using the geographical reality To speak of their spiritual state He's speaking of their compromised lives Hopeless hot water, is good for healing. Colossia, cold water for refreshing. Laodicea had neither. And Jesus was saying the church was neither refreshing for the spiritually weary, nor was it healing for the spiritually sick. It was compromised and ineffective and sickening to the Lord. I know your deeds, says Jesus. You are lukewarm and I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. See, lukewarmness... Spiritually is consistent, is not consistent with a passionate life. You know, a passionate, wholehearted faith uh, that puts Jesus first and looks to Jesus as the source and foundation of life. It's a life that is compromised. It's not living wholeheartedly. And so lukewarmness, of course, is, 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 a, is a condition that we know about here. We all know about it. We've all been there. And it's a prevailing condition that exists in the West and in, in cities like Perth, for example, where we're well off. And so there's this complacency about God. There's this apathy about God because actually we're okay. We seem to be okay. We seem to be able to work life out by ourselves. So, what causes this lukewarm condition, this lack of wholeheartedness? Well, in one word, it's compromise. It's compromise. Just as the water was compromised and became lukewarm, so can our spiritual lives be compromised with the spirit and the ways of the world. And uh, a complacency can creep in that, that, that kind of um, presents as a shocking half heartedness, a shocking half heartedness, even spiritual adultery, where we're looking for other sources. To give us satisfaction and fulfillment, other things that are going to make us happy, and so on. And God is put well down the list. And so various forms of idolatry creep in. Now we must appreciate this, there was incredible pressure on the Laodiceans to compromise. Incredible pressure. They had an edict from the emperor you must worship the emperor as God. And if you don't, there's consequences. It's a lot of pressure, the compromise. They had huge pressure to live by the values and priorities of the Roman Empire. Because in those days, if you didn't, you would never be wealthy. You would never get on in society unless you actually towed the line. And there's pressures on us today, different sort of pressures to compromise, to over-adapt to the culture. We must beware. See, the Laodiceans developed this kind of brand of Christianity, you know that um, that we can so easily develop that allows us to live in relationship to Jesus in our private life, you know, our church life or our home life, but to live the values and the priorities of the Roman Empire in our public life. So in our workplace and in our community space. We're living this kind of compromised, convicted lives. And that's the way that many of us avoid conflict with the culture by privatising our faith, not letting it live in our lives, in every realm of our lives, but compromising. And so we lack wholeheartedness for God. We become complacent about the things of God. And the believers in Laodicea had drunk very deeply of the spirit of the city. they drunk from the well of the city, the way of the city, this morning, I wonder if we have, if you have. You see, the motto of the city of Laodicea was this, a shocking motto, but this was their motto. I have need of nothing. Goodness me. The city regularly patted itself on the back saying, we've got everything we need to make it all work, to make life work on our own. We're self-made people, And uh, we make life successful without any assistance We get on and do the job Amazing But that's what they were saying They might have even gone to church on a Sunday And sang the hymns, whatever they sang Read the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures But they weren't living it It wasn't a reality in their hearts This highlights the great trap of the church In a city that's doing well When a city is doing well This is what can happen. We can falsely think that God is irrelevant. He's not really needed. Now, this is why Jesus spoke so strongly in his letter to the Laodiceans. See, he says, you say, and then Jesus says, but I say. You say, but I say. You say, I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. That's what they said. But you do not realise, says Jesus That you are wretched, you are pitiful, you are poor, blind and naked. See, Jesus is taking up what they're known for in the city. You don't even realise you're blind to your own spiritual blindness. This is the pitiful nature of lukewarmness. To be unaware of our lukewarmness. And this kind of false sense of contentment. So Jesus speaks bluntly. Now, he speaks bluntly to break the illusion, to wake them up to the condition that they're in. See, his words are direct, but they're not spoken in anger. They're spoken with great compassion and care and are directed at the three things they believed they were famous for and the world thought they were famous for. Jesus says, but you're not wealthy. In fact, you are poor. The word is beggarly poor. Rich in things, but bankrupt in spirit and life. You're not great physicians at all. You're blind. You have expensive eye self, but you only see what these physical eyes see. You have no spiritual eyes whatsoever. You are blind. Then he says, You're not well dressed, you're naked. The world might be impressed with your fashionable clothing, but I'm not impressed. You're naked. So what does Jesus do with this wretched, pitiful, nauseating church? What does he do? Well, he moves towards them in love and in grace, like he does with us. In love and in grace, amazing grace. Where would we be without it? Where would any of us be without the amazing grace of God? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, like all of us. He doesn't want them. Jesus does not want them to stay in their nauseating condition. They were made for greater things. They were made for an abundant life to which Jesus is the foundation and the source. And he wanted them to enter into it. He didn't want them to miss the great gift of God to them. That to which they were created for. So how does Jesus counsel them? Well, verse 18, he doesn't command them, but he advises them. He counsels them. He says, I counsel you to buy from me. Buy from me. Jesus uses their commercial language. He's advising them to buy what they cannot ever buy with money. He's talking about grace. Buy from me. Jesus is saying you need to buy true riches, which come only by grace. You can not earn these riches. But these are your greatest riches. Buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich. Buy from me white clothes so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. Buy from me self to put on your eyes so you can see things as they really are. So Jesus is addressing what they're known for. The key phrase, I believe, is from me. From me, from Jesus, can you hear the echo of of Isaiah 55? Whenever I read verse 8, I think of Isaiah 55. Come, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Listen and come to me and buy without money that you may live. Isaiah 55. Beautiful. Praise God, come, can you see the grace of God, Jesus' grace, sheer grace? He's nauseated by their lukewarmness, credibly nauseated. He's about to spit them out of his mouth. And what does he do? He opens the treasures of heaven to them. He opens the storehouse of heaven, the riches of heaven. See, the gates of heaven are open now in Christ. The door of heaven is opened in Christ by grace. But what Jesus is saying is you've also got a door. You've got to respond. There's a door of your life has to be opened to let the gate, let the, the treasures of heaven come in. Jesus is not going to force himself in. His grace and his love comes to win us over, that we open the doors of our heart to him. Jesus is saying to us, I think today, as he was saying to the Laodiceans, if you will just recognize your poverty, I'll enrich you with my riches. If you'll just recognize your nakedness, I'll clothe you with garments of love. If you'll just recognize your blindness, I'll make you see with my eyes. See, these are not angry words, but they're words of great love and compassion. That's why Jesus says, for those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, verse 19. See, why does he rebuke and why does he discipline, why does he speak the way he does? That we will achieve the destiny built into our bones, which is to know him. Which is to love him Which is to enter into life To be fulfilled And Jesus knows the only way that we can be fulfilled Is in communion with him In relationship with him We've been made for it And he wants us to go, Get into and be part of that For which we were created And not hold back the gates of heaven And that word there Whom I love It's interesting It's the word "filio." Which is affectionate love It's love that feels It's love that likes Being with with those who are loved So it's the feeling love And like being with those who you love So Jesus not only chooses to love those who make him sick But feels love For those that make him feel sick This is amazing grace This is the love of God this is a grace and love that can't be known apart from the being of God. He loves us through and through. And he wants to be with us. And he wants us to be with him. And so he feels this great love. So Jesus moves from counsel to command. And this is his command. So be earnest. The word there is passionate and repent. So he's saying repent, turn, repent and live passionately. Live the passionate life of God. And the repent is in the kind of verb tense that says to do it now. Do it now. And be earnest is in the verb tense to keep on doing it. Keep on having wholehearted passion. Keep the fire of God burning in you. Is what Jesus is saying Fan the flame of God in you Be alive Be who you've made to be in Christ Let the fire burn in you Be earnest, be passionate So how can we become and keep on being What we're currently not Moving from kind of lukewarmness To healing hot and refreshing cold Well We need not move at all Jesus says Here I am And here he is here now He's in, the very, uh, in our midst By his spirit And he's saying Here I am Don't need to go anywhere Don't have to do anything Here I am I stand at the door And knock It's the door of your life If anyone hears my voice And opens the door I will come in And eat with that person And they with me. This is the gate, the door of heaven's open, but will you open the door of your hearts? Behold, here I am, says Jesus. Look, I'm right here. I'm close to you. You might feel a long way away from me, but I'm not far from you. I'm right here with you. And I have all that you need. And Jesus does. He has all that we need. You might feel like, he's, like you've been excluded And you might have excluded him. You might have excluded him. But the reality is that he has not excluded you. He has not. His grace is abounding. All the more in these days. He's standing outside at the door and he's knocking. He longs to come in. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. You see, lukewarmness is caused by excluding Jesus. That's the bottom line That's the undergirding reason But it's excluding Jesus From all of our life Or from parts of our lives Which is important to see So we can, he, we, we can kind of You know, say yes Lord You can be Lord of that part of my life But not this part of my life I want to do that my own way So if we exclude Jesus See this text Even though it's used in evangelistic messages Um To unbelievers Jesus is actually speaking to Christians He's speaking to believers He's speaking to the church And he's telling them that they have excluded him From their lives This is why there's no healing or refreshing No overflow of life No power No joy No peace He's been excluded How could there be? The solution to lukewarmness Is not to conjure up emotions or enthusiasm or excitement but it's this to open the door that's what it is to open the door that's what it's about to let him in he won't force his way in the foundation and source of life he's saying here I am let me in there's the old painting that um, that we often see many of you would have seen it With Jesus standing at the door and knocking uh, but there's no handle on the outside. The handle is on the inside. It's our responsibility to open the door to let him in. He doesn't force himself in. Jesus then makes a wonderful promise. He said, if you open the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with you and you with me. See, this is a Middle Eastern way of saying, I am with you and I am for you and all that I have. I want to share with you, not just about food. It's about sharing his life with you, which is what he wants to do. Praise God. It's more than that. It's more than that. It echoes the Song of Solomon. In chapter 5, listen, my beloved is knocking at the door. Open to me, my beloved. See, Jesus' promise is to restore the deep intimacy of a lover's relationship. That bridegroom analogy again that we encountered in the letter to the Ephesians, the intimacy of being joined of being one with God. see Jesus is inviting you and I this morning to open the door that he might come in, deeper relationship with him, know him better, and Jesus then goes on to say in verse twenty one that he who overcomes you 'll grant the right. For them to sit with him on his throne. So Jesus not only not only inviting uh, inviting us. Jesus doesn't only come through the door for us to eat with him, sit down at table with him, but to raise us up to be seated with him in heavenly places, to sit on his throne with him, to rule with him. This is for which we've been created. And praise god one day it'll be fully realized jesus is saying open the door of your heart let me in let me in so you may never have turned the handle to your life before you've never done it but you know that you're spiritually bankrupt You're naked and you're blind and you know you need what Jesus has to offer. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Open the door. Let him in. You may have opened the door some time ago, but for whatever reason, you've excluded him. You feel stale, maybe empty, dry, even dirty. Turn the door handle again and he'll come in again. He'll refresh you. He'll reignite the life, the flame that is within you. And it won't just sit there, that flame of dormant coals, You may have opened the front door. Many of us do this, you open the front door, you let him into the living room. But there are other doors in your life that you do not want to open to him. And so they're closed. And Jesus stands at all of those doors too and he knocks. Because he knows that he will never be satisfied, but he knows that you will never be satisfied. Never be fully satisfied until he has access to every room. If only He can make all those rooms what they were made to be. Only Jesus can do that. We can't. So let Him into the room called marriage. Let Him into the room called family. Let Him into the room called sexuality. Let Him into the room called money and possessions. Let him into the room called career and workplace. Let him into the room called the past. Only Jesus can deal with it. Let him into the room called the future. He's our hope. He's your hope. Let him into that room called the future. Let him into the room called anger. Let him into the room called disappointment. All these various rooms, there's only one solution to nauseating lukewarmness. And half-heartedness And it's to readmit The excluded Jesus To turn the handle Will you turn the handle And let Jesus in today That he might have His rightful place In all of your life Not just in part But in all of your life Whoever has ears to hear Let them hear What the Spirit